There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Sonal is here with me today as Tim is taking some well-earned rest. We're going to focus for the next few minutes on Airbnb. Drive live. Talks legal. Our guest today, as usual, is Lude Miller. Uh, Lude Miller, I just got slightly distracted there because somebody asked me a question about you today and they weren't quite sure of your name. So now I'm saying it's making me laugh a little bit. But our guest today is Lude Miller, Yamalova from Yamalova and Pletka. I think it must be one of those experiences, Lude Miller, that you sometimes have to repeat your name to people. Uh, yes, on a daily basis, and um, I'm used to being distorted. So yes. whenever somebody actually pronounces it correctly, I am in awe and uh, very pleased. So it's more of an exception than the rule. Okay, well, I mean, this person um, is a fan of you on the show and obviously thought you had a very different name to what you do. So I won't share that with you on air. But um, if That's we right. can... I've heard every possible <laughs> variation. It's not bad, but it's not right. We, um, we're going to start, first of all, though, Ludmilla, by looking at Airbnb because, I mean, it's, it's astounding. I'm looking at this report in front of me that says the revenues are up 421% in Dubai, which is phenomenal, first of all. But with anything that's a growing trend, with anything that's new, there are a lot of pitfalls too. So, you know, most people might think, right, well, I often book a hotel or I've got a big family now. It might be easier for me to book somewhere like a home where I can have access to a kitchen and cooking. Um, but it's not so straightforward as you paying Airbnb and the transaction being that simple. Well, correct. And that's because the UAE has its own regulatory environment for treating Airbnb homes and they, you, they're called here as a, uh, holiday homes. So there, in fact, there's a whole body of laws and regulations that have been uh, implemented first in 2013 and, and various executive regulations and resolutions since then have been passed regulating that particular um, aspect of the industry. And mm-hmm. that is the holiday home industry. So in other countries, for example, Airbnb is not regulated in the same way that it is here. So because of that, you, you're absolutely right. It's important to understand so the legal framework behind uh, behind the concept, uh, which to those who don't live in, in the region, or uh, perhaps would never even ask a question, why would I need to get a license if I want to rent out my property while I'm away on a holiday, for example. So, But in the UAE, there is a very clear regulatory environment. Well, actually, let me, before I launch into the rest of it, I'll clarify. This mm. is very much Emirate-based. So the regulations that exist today are, uh, are mainly Dubai. Yeah. Uh, we're not aware of similar regulations in other Emirates, though we know that, for example, Airbnb does exist in other Emirates. So if you go on Airbnb these days, you can find properties available throughout the UAE. But in fact, it's Dubai that has the most clear and stringent, if you will, regulations um, for properties that are considered to be holiday homes. And obviously, many of them are being rented out through uh, through Airbnb, so that's why Airbnb obviously comes into into play quite um, quite often. Mm. So, with regards to the regulations, it's not so simple. So, just because it's your home, and and it's a debate that still exists today amongst many professionals and many many expert experts, because the natural feeling is that it's my property; I should be able to do whatever I want to do with it. Well, it's not so in Dubai. Then, even though it's your property, if you do want to rent it out on a short term basis, uh, which is considered then the property is considered as a holiday property you need to follow certain regulations and you are subject to regulations the first uh, body of law that was introduced was introduced in 2013 and it's um, wow uh, yes yes quite a while back back, yes and it was law number 41 of 2013 regulating activity of leasing holiday homes in dubai 
And so back then, the, that particular law talked about the various requirements, uh, licensing requirements that apply for two categories of applicants, if you will. One, the companies, and that's obviously there's, at that time, it was aimed more at companies that were renting out properties on a short-term basis, more so the individuals, because Airbnb in 2013 was obviously not as popular as it is yeah. today. So at that time, there were a lot of real estate companies, for example, that started to rent out uh, properties uh, under their brokerage license, under the normal sort of real estate brokerage license, and that's when the government stepped in and said, well, that particular sphere needs to be regulated separately because your brokerage license does not, uh, by default, extend to your, uh, to your rental, short-term rentals. And they're quite different markets, aren't they? For example, if you looked at, I don't know, somewhere that might be popular, an apartment in the marina, for example, the price you might charge someone to stay per night, per week, if it's a holiday let, would be miles away from what you would charge someone on a monthly basis if they were taking out a six-month, nine-month, 12-month lease. For sure, and but vice versa, that particular apartment for that one week would be a lot less, for example, than if you were to rent a a similar property, let's say, in the hotel, in a sort of a Mm. classic or, or traditional hotel. And it's an option that is very convenient in particular for for families and certain cultures have much bigger families for them so that particular option is that much more important and it's that much more economical for them to be able to rent you're absolutely right as as an owner of the property or as, or as a broker if you rent it on a, on a monthly basis versus a weekly basis or daily basis the the margins are very different uh, but because because the margins are different also the obligations and the expectations of um, of that particular property are very different as well so when when you're renting to somebody who's coming into the country for a week, um, how do you ensure, as, as visitors, how do you ensure the property is fit for purpose and that your people are here only for a week versus those who are moving in and, and renting properties for the long haul when mm. they can, if there are any sort of issues or grievances, they have the opportunity to, to voice those grievances with the right authority. But when you're only here for a holiday for a week or two, especially with your family, and you move into an apartment and it doesn't have AC, for example, connected, or it doesn't have access to the pool or the beach or the other amenities which were included in the package, if you will. So it was really with that, for that reason, so it requires a lot more regulation mm. because the, the, the term of the visits are much shorter and therefore the requirements are, and the expectations are much are much different. So, And this is why the authority stepped in and said, okay, well, the real estate companies and all those other brokerages that normally manage these, uh, normal, normally manage the traditional rentals and now are starting to do these holiday rentals, they need to be subject to different regulations because these properties require different supervision. And so as a result, they've introduced um, the role for the, the Dubai uh, Tourism and, and Commerce Marketing, so DTCM. Mm-hmm. So this is a new a government body that is now uh, responsible for licensing and regulating and enforcing holiday homes. And so anybody, whether you're a company or an individual, you need to get a license from DTCM to be able to rent out your properties as holiday homes. And so, I, Ludmilla, for some of the people that are interested in doing this, what is that license process? What are some of the steps that they need to go through? What are some of the regulations they have to be aware of? Okay, so the best thing I could do is is refer basically to, to the internet and the website just because there are so many regulations. In general, generally speaking, if you are an owner and you're renting out your own properties, uh, then you can you're considered an individual. And so all you need to do is you need to get a license from DTCM, but it's not your typical corporate license where you have to pay just uh, and pay a lot of fees on an annual basis. 
cases. The license is issued from anywhere from one year. The standard is one year, but you can uh, you can apply for li- a license up to four years. And um, so as an individual, all you need to submit is basically your documents and your Emirates ID, your passport and, and, li- and title deed to show, basically to, to get a license, so to speak. Um, but as a company, it's a completely different um, set of requirements. So the best thing to do is is to go on the DTCM website because there there's a whole list. And in fact, the most recent document, which might be very helpful, it's on the DTCM website and it was published in 2017. And it's called Holiday Homes um, User Manual. Mm. So and it's very nicely laid out. And so it's a summary of all the relevant laws and regulations and also references and, um, and list of fines. Uh, and uh, so that's probably the most helpful document because it all depends on who is applying. So whether you're a real estate brokerage company or you're some other kind of company that's not licensed to uh, to manage properties and so on and so forth. So the best resource, I would say, is the DTCM website itself. There's plenty of, um, of resources available and, and clear summaries and guidelines called the user manual. So it's sort of the name uh, explains itself. And this is to work on both sides, Ludmilla. Of course, if you're someone looking to rent a property, you need to know that this is licensed because if there is a problem, an issue, there is some recourse. And if you want to um, rent out your property and someone arrives and they're mistreating somewhere and you aren't registered, again, you're in a vulnerable position. So it works on both ways, doesn't it? For sure. And in fact, the, the regulations are very explicit also about the penalties. Who has the enforcement authority? And, and it's, again, DTCM, which is great because it's not like you have to go to yet another government authority to be able to enforce or, or, or lodge your grievances or complaints. So it's still under the umbrella of DTCM. Uh, and there are clear fines that are, that are assigned for each violation. So it's anywhere between 200 and 20 thousand dirhams but if there's more violation per year then within the same year then the fines are doubled and all the way up to 100,000 dirhams so if you think about it so there are fairly significant and fairly effective penalties that exist that would ultimately in theory work as incentive for the homeowners or for the operators to make sure that they comply with the regulations and that the property is up to standard. Okay, we're going to come back to that topic, but we're also going to look at a few employment questions. We're going to look at not having your salaried pays and also if you are losing out on your end of service payment, what can you do? Stay with us. We'll be answering those questions next. Drive Live Talks Legal. Tamilia is not here today. It's NLT and Sonal with you, but we're talking all things legal. Our guest is Ludmila Yamanova from Yamanova and Plethka. And we've been talking about Airbnb, what it's like to rent your property, how the fact that you need to be licensed. And we've had a text in on this, Ludmila. It says, can I rent out my property if I only have one? Are there any restrictions, says Rasha? Well, the clarification here is the term of rent, because it's not about how many properties one has, but it's rather on what terms you're renting out that property. So if the property is being rented out, rented out on a short-term basis, uh, and that's from a week, or two weeks, uh, perhaps uh, you know, uh, even a month, um, then it would be considered a temporary uh, temporary lease, if you will, and therefore holiday accommodation. Therefore, irrespective of how many properties you have, if you have that one property, but you are renting it out uh, as a holiday home, then yes, you still need to have a license and the license again comes from DDCM and uh, to apply as an you can apply as an individual it is not a very involved process but you do need to provide certain documents that establish your identity the property identity and obviously the fact the property is up to um, the right standard and uh, all the fees are paid properly and timely and on the topic of restrictions I had read that you can actually only rent out a full apartment or a full unit as opposed to rooms so what does that mean for people who are trying to rent out 
single room. Indeed, and that's the, the that's the law. Two thousand thirteen says that the property can only be rented as a whole, not in parts, not per room. So that is one difference in the UAE that you, at least in Dubai, you would see with Airbnb because Airbnb that's how it became popular is that people were actually renting out rooms. Um, so here it's against their rules, and obviously those who are violating those rules would be subject to the penalties uh, uh, under the DTCM, and uh, they would. If, if they do have a license, that license can be the, the different ways of addressing violations in addition to penalties. There could be a warning, uh, there could be a suspension up to six months, or there could be cancellation. So depending on uh, on how many and sort of the gravity of the offense, um, they, if they do have a license, they would be suspended. If they don't have a license, it'll be a fine, uh, and perhaps they will never be allowed to, to do it again. So, I mean, that is, you're correct. That is one restriction here that perhaps does not exist in other countries. And so you have a question there from Dave. That's right. We received another question. It's uh, from Dave. I received gratuity end of service payout from my previous employers in two postdated checks. I cashed the first, no problem, but was told not to cash the second until I was given confirmation by my former boss that the funds were there. This was to be a month later. The deadline has passed and now he refuses to answer emails, calls, face-to-face meetings, despite me doorstepping him twice. I'm still on the work visa. I'm in possession of the second postdated check, but I'm hesitant to cash it as I'm unconvinced the funds are there. What's the best course of action to take to ensure well, I receive the money. Well, in fact, you should cash the check because uh, the fact that the, the funds are not there or, I mean, I guess you won't know until you've actually cast the check, but in any event, a check is a very effective guarantee and it's becoming a little less so because the regulations are changing, uh, but in, in general, until you have cashed the check, you actually, you don't really have a claim because your claim is pre- premature, if you will, because right now you cannot even address that case before court or the regulatory authority because the um, uh, because you don't because the company effectively has not defaulted and the default happens when is when in fact you are due a payment and that payment um, has not happened now how are you due a payment here you have a check that's issued to your name so unless you cash it you will not know whether that particular payment uh, will clear or not and until it, you know that you will not really have a claim to act on so you most definitely need to cash the check and that could solve it or re- at least give you information on a number of of fronts one if the funds are there then you're fine then you've got you've received your uh, the remainder of your end of service benefits if the funds are not there then the check will bounce and then you can with that check then you can report uh, the um, um, I guess the company to the police and I would recommend you do that because Ultimately, while you don't necessarily want to create trouble, perhaps for the people you used to work for, um, but um, it, but it is an effective leverage. At least when you go and report the case to the uh, to the police, they will generally speaking call uh, either the, the general manager on the license or the. Um, uh, or the the signatory on on the check, um, and they will be asked to account for why the check has not been paid and actually and and, and required to pay the check at some point. So before they would actually be put in jail. These days, anything uh, below two hundred thousand dirhams does not land people in jail automatically, as it used to be the case. So, but still, it's an it's it's an effective leverage. So you want to do that because to understand where the other side stands. Now, once you have a a, a bounced check, uh, the person will may still not be able 
able to pay it. And so if you believe that the company still has money, at some point you'll have two recourse at that point. You can continue on a criminal route because a bounce check is a criminal offense. So you can continue on, on that. Uh, or you can file a case with the Ministry of Labor, which is basically mm. for the payment of dues. And in that case, you don't need to worry that perhaps, because what a lot of people do when they um, when their employment comes to an end, they sign a form that says, I have received all dues. And so many people worry that le- uh, if part of those dues are later not paid, that they're precluded to pursue that claim because they will have signed already in the undertaking that they've received everything. But that undertaking is only valid if you, in fact, have Come received all the dues. So you don't need to worry about any particular undertakings as long as you have proved that you have not received the dues. So the next step will be to file a case with the Ministry of Labor and um, and and if the company has money, hopefully. And in fact, that will be effectively the most, in the long run, the most effective uh, route because a company will not be able to even liquidate until they've paid their, all of their employees once you have a registered case. But if you don't have a registered case, obviously the authorities don't know that, that, there are, um, um, that there are creditors out there. Yeah, they can't act on it if they don't have access to the information. We have another similar question here. This one says, um, I work in a private company. Sometimes we don't get our salaries for two months or even three. What does the law state about this and what would your advice be? Well, in, in a way, it actually depends on where you work for a private company, because if you are uh, working for a private company that is licensed by DED, and that's Department of Economic Development, then there is a system uh, f- uh, for most of the, the DED companies that exists. It's called the Wage Protection System, or WPS. In that case, usually if the salary is not paid for more than, I think, 45 days, then the authorities do step in and actually put a block on the company, and they do not allow the company to um, wow. you know, to, to operate until uh, all their... And it's usually it has to be at least 80% of the employee's salaries that is paid uh, on a regular basis. If not, then they can p- put a block on the company. Now, if you're not, par- so two to three months would actually qualify uh, for that. Now, if you're not under a WPS system, then perhaps you're in one of the free zones. The free zones do not have a similar mechanism. So in that particular case, you, honestly, your only recourse is to, I guess you have two. One is that you can file a claim with the labor court while you are, um, while you are um, employed and to do that provided that you're with a, with a free zone company you have to first go through mediation uh, committee in that particular free zone before you go to the Ministry of Labor or in the Labor Court and there you basically complain that you have not been paid for those two months or three months but in the long run to be honest with you if this is a pattern that the company continues to pursue then the best thing to do is just you can't really do anything other than perhaps resign because if you don't have the confidence that the company either has the funds to pay or or has legitimate practices, at least as far as its employees are concerned, then your only real recourse or effective recourse is to just move on. But obviously, getting after having gotten paid all the um, uh, outstanding dues. It's NLT and Sonal with you. Tim's taking a well-earned rest. And we are talking all things legal. Our guest today is Lumila Imanova from Imanova and Plethka. And we're just looking at some of the questions we have in at the moment. If you want to get a question in, we can probably squeeze a few more right now. We're going to come to this one. It's quite a complex one. So bear with me, Ludmilla. This one... Um, Someone's texted in and said, understandably, they want to remain anonymous. I've just found out my husband is leaving me for another woman. Uh, we moved out here for his job. He is um, a senior doctor and I work part time. I want to go home back to Europe. Um, I have discovered that he's run up huge debts here um, of, of two million dirham. First of all, am I liable for this? 
yes, it is a very complicated question for a number of reasons. Uh, well, and it's it's multifaceted as well. So with regards to, I mean, first, just leaving leaving you for another person does not necessarily legally change the status of the uh, the relationship. So just physically leaving for another woman, in fact, that would actually be a crime while you're still married it was, mm. uh, and, and you were moving or living with somebody um, while you're married to somebody else. I mean, that could you know, that could be considered a crime, so you, he wouldn't want to do that. He should not want to do that. Um, so presumably, or I guess more advisable to him would be to um, to formalize um, the end of, of your marriage, and that would be through a divorce proceedings. And divorce, I mean, that's another complicated subject, and it could be done either under in the UAE, uh, and then if you do it in the UAE, it could either be done by Sharia. You can always opt for Sharia, but in order for Sharia, unless you're Muslim, obviously Sharia would apply, but if you're not, you can always agree on Sharia to apply, or one of the other parties can, um, can request the judge for Sharia to apply, but then the other party has to agree. And so that would be kind of the quickest way to uh, to formalize a divorce, and th- that is if you do it in the UAE and you apply Sharia. Now, many th- those who are not a Muslim may not understand; they may not want Sharia to apply. I mean, obviously, depending on which side you are on, because in many ways it can be the quickest and, and most effective way. So, if you don't have, for example, children and you don't really have any assets that you're trying to split up, even as a woman, you perhaps may want to agree to Sharia just to to formalize the end of of, of this relationship and, and kind of start moving on to separate ways so and then but if the divorce is not is not affected here in in the UAE then you have to go through your home country and until that's done effectively you're still married so there's so it's not so easy just to move away or move out so you the the, the relationship has to be I guess the status of the relation status of the relationship has to be formalized to in one extent or another so that's with regards to that. Now, with regards to the debt, I mean, obviously, if you have children, that that complicates uh, matters a lot more. But it's I'm they've, not sure if they've said here they they have um, no children um, and they married in Europe five years ago. So. Um, so, so I mean, that simplifies matters a little bit because really, it's uh, most of the time marriages when they when they come to an end, it's the, the sort of the most heated issues are about children. But then the other aspect is assets, assets, and then support. So, you know, if you expect your husband to support you, then you will ultimately have to go and, and file for a divorce. I would recommend in this particular case you file for divorce where you got married in Europe, um, so that there the courts can affect a, um, a sort of a resolution, if you will, a roadmap as for the laws that apply to you as, as a resident of that European country. And in that case, um, you know, if, if, you're, if the laws in your country would require for the husband to sponsor you or support you, then he will have the obligation to continue to do that. Uh, so this is why also it's, in again, I don't know the full circumstances, but I would advise based on, on the phrasing of the question, I would advise for the divorce that should take place in the UK. Now, with regards to a more immediate issue, which is what... Uh, what the listener is asking, and that's about the debt. Now, no, you will not. If the debt is attached to him personally, then you're not responsible for it. Now, what do I mean by that? If you have a bank account, um, t- joint bank account, and he applied for a, a loan or a mortgage or what, what have you, some, uh, and then you and it's jointly held, then yes, you can be responsible mm. for debt that is in your joint names. Now, to be to have that. 
to have that debt, uh, you would have had to actually sign off on it because the banks would require usually that if it's if a joint account, then the both parties would um, uh, would agree to it. Now, the fact that you just discovered that he has the debt uh, leads me to believe that you did not know about it. And so, therefore, most likely, based on your phrasing of the question, there are no uh, there are no um, I guess debts that, that are attributable to both of you. And so, just because you are married, that does not make you liable uh, for his debts unless legally speaking you are part of uh, you know of that bank account for example or if he leveraged or guaranteed the house um, that you own together jointly uh, then you're basically stuck uh, or you know, let's say a car or what have whatever other assets you may um, own jointly and those assets become part of the um, uh, part of the creditors uh, mm-hmm. reach then you could be responsible but but again just by virtue of being married you are not responsible for his debt for his debt so you don't need to worry about that so I'd say in your case uh, your priority should should be if you know this is this has come to an end you just move back to where you came from and you apply for divorce in that particular country and you ask for all the benefits that would otherwise uh, you'd be entitled to under the laws of that country okay really really sad yeah really sad that one um and obviously people are talking about leaving the country and people are worried about that's what it sounds like she's very worried about leaving the country get getting to the airport and you know, not yes, being able to leave yes. So, so these problem. these things will not happen because um, um, people that get arrested arrested at the airport, they usually involve, for example, bounce checked. When it's it's, right. it's your check and you've signed, or for example, a check that is in your joint uh, joint names. But even then, it would always be the signatory that will be held responsible first. And let's say let's say if you have a joint account, a bank account, and but the check was um, signed by your husband, it would be he f- um, that would first be uh, requested by the police to to. to account um, for the, the, the defaulting check and not you and only if your husband is not available or is not in this country then they might come after you but that doesn't sound like um, is the case with you so you are clear now if you do worry for some other reason um, that we're not addressing here based on well, the details we know you can go to the police and you can actually ask the police to, to give you uh, to, to give you sort of a clearance if you will in terms of whether there are any cases against you and that will give, just give you a little bit of peace of mind that um, there will be no issue when you cross um, when, when you cross the border um, so that is possible that is done all the time it's sort of like a like if you will like a good conduct certificate but the mm-hmm. police will issue that and they will tell you there's nothing to your name so that might give you some mental um, peace uh, when you do exit but before you leave and, and if, if if it's obviously usually when women come here to uh, with their husbands who, whose jobs bring them here uh, they don't have many things that are actually in their names um, but if you do have let's say a bank account and it's in your name that you make sure you close it because if you don't close even if you don't have any outstanding dues the dues will accumulate just by virtue of having an account because bank account costs money and mm. we've had plenty of, of cases where people thought that the bank account was uh, the the account was clear or that they're you know because they're not using it anymore was closed but in fact there were fees that were being accrued and then there are all sorts of issues that come up with that so before you leave the country if you worry about any other debts that might be attached to your name make sure that if you have a phone uh, or any other utilities that are issued in your name that you can Cancel them. That you get the uh, the final certificates that, that show proof that you have, let's say, paid off all your phone bills and that the that your account is closed. So just paying off itself is not enough. You need to make sure that you have proof that your accounts have been closed, be it bank account, be it your utilities account, your phone accounts, uh, or anything else that may be attached to your name. And that way, you can leave the country peacefully. 
Okay, we'll try and squeeze a couple of questions in here. This one is also anonymous, Ludmilla. It says, is it possible for me to get my full and final settlement in cash or cheque in my name instead of it being transferred to my salary account? The company refuses to do so. I understand since I took a personal loan, all of my final settlement will be frozen in my account for a minimum of two months. Well, this is actually contractual driven. And um, generally speaking, there is no obligation for the company to transfer the money for your end of service into your bank account. So there is no such requirement unless there is some other undertaking that establishes that requirement. And that usually happens. And we've seen this happen before. Usually, like in, as in this case, a person takes a loan, but as part of taking a loan from the bank, the bank requires an undertaking from the company, from the employer, that they will pay on the end of service and the person's salary and any of this end of service into that bank account. And that's sort of used as a guarantee to give a person a loan. So in that particular case, now the company becomes uh, somewhat a party to that sort of, it's a tri-party agreement almost. So they have an undertaking or an obligation with the bank uh, to continue to make those payments and payments into the person's bank account because it was on the basis of those representations that the bank issued a personal or a loan to so uh, so I can understand. So I'm uh, presumably this is exactly what happened in this particular case, and this is why the company is is uh, refusing to uh, to transfer money or to give you money in cash. Uh, that, as I say that, obviously the company will have its own kind of moral obligation, but truly is more of a moral obligation than legal obligation for the company to do so. To do so, if it wants to still pay you in cash, it can. But if it may not want to do it because of this undertaking, though the enforceability of this undertaking is a different matter. Okay, we, I think we've got Mohammed on the line who wants to ask you a quick question. We've just got a couple of minutes, Mohammed. So, what's your question Hello. for Ludmilla? Hi. Hello. Uh, see, the scenario goes like uh, my father recently lost his job and uh, he has a, uh, some amount of loan left on him. Now, I was just wondering if I will be liable for his loans if he plans to leave. Uh, just to clarify, we both are on completely separate visas, working for different entities. Uh, great question. No. In short, you will not be responsible or liable. It's uh, The liabilities don't attach to family members unless those liabilities are issued in the name of both family members. So you're, you're fine. All right. Perfect. That's good. Thank you so much. Thank you sure. for your question, Mohammed. And just finally, we'll squeeze one more in, Ludmilla. This one says, can I be under a semi-government company residency and do some part-time jobs like DJing on the side? Part-time jobs has been a real hot topic recently, Ludmilla. So what's the advice here? Indeed. And in this particular case, because the new regulation that came out, it waived the requirement, the previous requirement that existed for part-time jobs to get the NOC or the approval from your sponsor. In your case, it would be this, the semi-government company. Um, so so because you're not required to get re- uh, an NOC from them, then uh, under the new regulation, you can work as a DJ, for example, on the side uh, without um, seeking their approval. Unless, however, and I, I highly doubt this would exist, but unless there is some other specific restriction in your contract with that particular company that disallows you to work for anyone else. But we haven't really seen anyone like this because until recently there was never an issue. So I doubt it's in there. But um, so, but legally speaking, you're covered. If you just if you just apply for um, for the part time job permission, but don't tell your company so because there's no requirement for you to disclose it to them. Okay, thank you very much. Ludmilla, we got through loads there, so thank you very much. That's the end of Drive Live Talks Legal for this week. Uh, Ludmilla, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Always a pleasure. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.